once famously said that golf is deceptively simple and endlessly complicated. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become one of the greatest golfers in the world or what goes on inside the ropes? Behind every successful golfer is their coach, who eludes the limelight more often than not. While everyone can resonate with names like Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kipka, very few can identify the man who worked behind the scenes toward their success, helping them achieve near perfection. Winning a PGA Tour event is no cakewalk, and today, we have a person who was instrumental behind 250-plus PGA Tour victories. From starting as a journeyman to becoming one of the most successful coaches in golf, Pete Cowan has dedicated his entire life to the sport, earning a spotless reputation in the process. Join us as we sit down with Cowan for an enriching conversation around golf, Tiger Woods, and the sport's promising yet disruptive future. Hello, hello there, and welcome to the ES Fancast stories from insiders for the fans. With the ES Fancast, we bring you an immersive and interactive interview experience that gets you, the fan, a peek inside the world of your favorite sports. And today we have someone who's worn multiple hats. He's been a professional golfer on the DP World Tour, earlier known as the European Tour, and is now a world-renowned golf coach. That is Pete Cowan, who played professional golf on the European circuit in the 1970s and early 80s, winning the Zambia Open in 1976. Since becoming a coach, he's also taught a lot of famous names in the sports. I'm talking Rory. I'm talking Brooks Kepka, just to name a few. Truly, Pete Cowan is among the most renowned names in the golf fraternity. Pete, welcome to the ES Fancast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, that was a nice introduction, though. Thanks very much. <laughs> More than hey, I want to give myself. <laughs> hey, man, I, I just read off what they give me, man. But I think yeah, I mean, we could have even done more there. Um, you know, Pete, this is this is special because you don't do much of these. Uh, I've only ever done one before. I mean, like with an Irish, a couple of Irish guys years ago before COVID. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot. We were just talking Netflix. Like this, this is the the special right here. Um, so I, I we we really appreciate it. Um, you know, Pete, you've been a full-time tour coach since 95. Um, not to age you, but there's been a couple of decades that have gone by and, um, you know, a age catches up with all of us. But I'm wondering for you, like, what does your day-to-day -day look like right now? Like, how many hours are you working and, and what have you been up to? Uh, well, I, I get up about 5.30. I go for a five-mile run. Uh, I go on back and have my breakfast. Then I go to the range and pick balls up for two or three hours because we're having to hand pick because it's wet at the moment. And then when I've done that, we wash the golf balls. Then I go and do my research and development. And then I might do some gym work in the afternoon. No, I'm lying. <laughs> 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 uh, no, I, I do pick the golf balls up, though. <laughs> That's for sure. The, the range is so wet at the moment you know, that we have to handpick. And there's uh, there's a lot of golf balls out there that keep, needs to keep the range uh, in business. Um, I mean, you you have a, a youthful spirit about yourself. So genuinely, I don't know which part you were lying about. Were you lying about the five-mile run or, or doing or lifting weights in the afternoon? Like, no, I, I, do 10 mi I do 10 miles. I do 10 miles. I I, I, I under-exaggerated there. I do about 10 miles. So Every day. that's all right. Well, when I can. That is incredibly impressive. 
Um, I, I, I think there's some guys that you coach that probably don't run, don't run that as long as no, much they as never you... run. They never run. <laughs> and they certainly don't get up at five 30. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No. Wow. So then well, I do a lot of re- my own research and development. I'll go out in the bunker and spend three hours in a bunker trying to improve my technique or try to find a new technique. I always say that I get up every morning to try and find a better way of doing things. That's my that's wow. my mantra. I get up every morning and I, I, say, I try and search. And obviously it's to do with golf because I'm involved in golf. So I'm always trying to find a better way of doing it. Wow. And are you... Are you doing quote unquote your research sun up to sun down, or have you, you know, tapered off the amount of hours you're working each day? No, I, I, I still do an awful lot of hours in it. I'll, you know, go out and do that um, because there's got to be, I always say there's got to be a better way, and it's up to me to find it. So wow. I've got to find it. I've got to be, I've got to be the one that finds it. I've certainly thought about the golf swing probably more than most. There's no doubt. As I say, I'm 72 wow. years old and I've been in the game. What, 57, 55, 55 years I've been in the game. Incredible, incredible. So, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely dive into sort of the the technical aspects of, um, you know, your career in coaching. But, like, I, I, I got to ask you this first, man. So, you know, it. I want to learn a little bit more about, you know, your family and how they support you. Apparently, and we want to get our facts right, but you've been married to your wife for 48 years. Um I need some advice on relationship. I mean, that that in, in itself is an accomplishment. Um, you know, how has the journey been with with your family as they support you through your your coaching career? Well, my wife will tell you the only reason we've been married for 48 years is because we've only lived together for three. <laughs> <laughs> if okay. you add up all the weeks I've been at home. <laughs> so it's one of those. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> so wow. she says, I've lived, I've lived the life of a single man for 48 years, she tells me, because I've, <laughs> I've been able to get on, get on the plane and go here to two, through two weeks in America, two weeks in Australia, nine weeks in the Middle East or whatever. So, you know, she says, and she's been with me occasionally. She did come out on tour in the 70s, but she didn't like it. So she said, you carry on. I'll do my own thing. You carry on with yours. Oh, she's my a good goodness. gardener, though. She's a good gardener. She's been doing it in the garden for 48 years. 48 years. Man. So so are you telling me uh, the best way to keep a relationship is 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 have a a natural absence, stitch in a work work related yeah. occupation that draws me away from home a little well, bit? Well, the advice somebody gave me before I got married was one of the guys said, if you go out on a Friday night with your pals, your mates, Make sure you go out every Friday night, even if your mates aren't there. Go out by yourself because your wife will get used to you going out on Friday night. <laughs> so you'll always have a guy's night out. <laughs> oh, this is, dear. Wow. This is uh, this is great wisdom. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a sponge right now uh, soaking it up. Pete, what um, what are your kids up to right now? Uh, are they just, are they helping you with your academy or do you have them still golf? Yeah, they they run the range. They um uh, my daughter and my twin boys, they run the range. I gave them the range many years ago. So that, although I'm at the range quite often when I'm at home, they run the range day to day totally. And it's quite a busy little range. We've we've got Top Tracer on now, which is, you know, gone wild. People love it. The Top Tracer, which is a mini version of Top Golf. Uh, yeah. All owned by Cal all owned by Callaway, which 
obviously I'm an ambassador for Callaway. And yeah. somebody somebody asked them a question, why Callaway instead of the other manufacturers? I said, well, you know, the answer to that is they're great guys. The the R and D is great. The, the you know the product's great, and they're great people. So that's the reason I'm with Callaway. Absolutely, and I actually want to touch on Callaway in a little bit. So I, I'm excited to circle back to that. Um, Pete, would you imagine you know, ten twenty years ago that you know if someone told you 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 would be working with the best people in the sport, you know, Rory, Sergio, Kepka, uh, and others, you know. Would you have called them crazy? Like, did you ever imagine this would be sort of your your, your line of work? Uh, no, I was always interested in technique. And uh, years ago, I went and in the seventies. I went to an American coach. Uh, it was seventy eight, only seventy eight or seventy nine, I think. And uh, I went to this American coach, hoping to get you know more pearls of wisdom from them, and you know, understanding the technique and. Uh, Everybody thinks uh, golf lessons are expensive now, but in the 70s, 90, as I said, 78, 79. So it's, uh, what, 43 years ago, 44 years ago. Uh, it was 200 US dollars an hour then. Mm. Wow. 40, 44 years ago. Wow. So it, it was a lot of money. And I, I had 10 lessons over a two-week period, and it was uh, $2,000 in 78. Yeah, that adds up. That adds up. Yeah. Pete, is there, um, of all the elite players that, that you've coached, is there um, a professional player that you not regret, but like wish you had worked with earlier? Yeah, my, myself. <laughs> myself. <laughs> I needed help and I didn't get it. Because I, I failed purely and simply on um, temperament. I had the worst temperament out there. I was a club thrower, smash clubs, and I couldn't accept because I spent so many time, so many hours hitting balls, millions and millions of balls. I thought I didn't deserve to hit poor shots, and one yeah. poor shot could, one poor shot could just set it off like that. And I, I was, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept the poor shot. So Did that was the main reason. When I look back, and people say, "Well, as a coach." People say, why why will why are people successful as coaches? And I always say, Well, there's one thing that if you should have what if you should have succeeded and you failed, then that might make you a good coach because you'll know why you failed. So that's mm. why I say, you know, uh, and sometimes it's the guys that have failed that should have succeeded that become the great mentors, the great coaches. Because if you look at all the great players, they don't want to be coaches. They don't, no. they don't want to coach. They haven't got That's... it in them to coach. They haven't, they haven't got skin thick enough to coach. You need the skin of an elephant to actually coach golf to all these you know, top players because it is very that... difficult. That's such a good point. And you notice, like I'm a basketball guy, I notice all, some of the best NBA coaches, um, some of the best coaches in baseball, football, they weren't the best players. Like they played, but they didn't probably probably think to themselves they underachieved. And yeah. it's such a good point you bring up because the very best players, they don't make they they don't become legendary coaches. I, I, it's it's a good point that you make. No, well, I always said that. I said you know that 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 is the problem. I mean, you know, you get somebody like uh, Alex Ferguson in obviously you call it soccer, we call it football over here. 
who's Man United, 19 Premiership titles. You know, I mean, the, the answer to that is that, that he was the most successful, but he wasn't that successful as a player. But he actually understood. He, and his man management was brilliant. And that's what I do with uh, the players. You've got to remember that I, I've given more players a roasting or, you know, a bollocking, as we call it in the in UK. I've, I've given them bollocking to actually make them win big tournaments rather than giving them a good, good golf lesson. The first one I can remember was with, with Brooks at, at Erin Hills when he won his first tournament. I mean, I, I sat with him on the range on Tuesday, having watched him play four rounds at the St. Jude Classic the week before I watched him. And his attitude was absolutely appalling. You know, <laughs> shoulders down. He was, I mean, it was, it was embarrassing watching him walk around the golf course. So before he actually started the US Open, the following week, I said to him and Ricky is caddy, I said, you need to come down to the range. Um, I want to talk to you. So I sat them down by the short game area, the green, and I sat them down. And I stood up and pointed my finger as the school teacher would. I was pointing my finger. And I said to them, I said to Brooks, I said, with the attitude you had last week, you will win nothing. It was pathetic. I was embarrassed. Wow. So I gave him a proper roasting, a proper bark. And, and, and wow. I said, you need a challenge. Are you going to have the attitude of a champion or are you going to continue being, you know, that petulant child that you were last week? He said, well, challenge me. I said, well, I'm challenging you now. Challenge you to go out and win this tournament. Wow. And obviously, he accepted the challenge. And I've only got one flag of uh, Brooks uh, at home. And on it, it's from Herring, Herring Hills, although he's won five majors in total. I've only got one flag. And on it, it says, Thanks for the bollocking. I couldn't have won it without that. Wow. That's, that's the only one I that's the only one I need. And I've done that with I've done that with four major champions. The week before they won, I've given them a roasting and a bollocking and they've they've won. So it was so, attitude. It was attitude that was missing. Wow. So I if I could take one advice for being a future great golf coach. It's roast the shit out of the best players before they start playing the biggest tournament. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what and that's what they need. They need it because they've got so many ego strokers that stroke their ego. Oh, you're a great player. You should do this. You should do that. You should do the other. And they need honesty. They need to say, no, you're not that great player yet. You haven't actually achieved anything. Are you going to achieve it or are you going to be you know, as I say, you know, without a pair of balls, are you going to, you know, not have a pair of balls? Wow. Yeah. That, that, in that's, uh, that's really great insight there. Uh, and I want to, um, I, I want to chat a little bit about Rory. You first saw him when, uh, he was 13 or 14 years old and he immediately caught your attention. Um, and when you, in your short time that you guys worked together, he was able to win a couple tournaments, probably because you sat there and, and gave him a bollocking. Uh, in, in yep. 2024, um, it will mark 10 years since he last won his major, um, since the Open Championship and in Royal Liverpool. Um, you know, obviously you still have a, a solid relationship with him, uh, but but from your perspective, uh, what could you what do you think could be the possible reason uh, for the drought? Uh, well, people have just actually you know played a bit better right at the death. I mean, he should have won St Andrews when Cam Smith won. There's no doubt about that. But he should have won when I was working with him in 21, the, the, the Open, the US Open that uh, Ram won. 
uh, in California. Um, uh, Rory should have won that. He was he was playing so well, and he just had a three put on about the thirteenth or fourteenth hole, and it rocked him a bit. And then he hit a drive, plugged it in the face of a bunker on the next hole, took double. And but he was he was leading the tournament at the time when he three putted, and I said to him that week, I said, should be all week this week. You, you know, you've got everything going for you. And to be fair, he should have won that tournament. And he said yeah. afterwards he should have won it. Uh, but I saw Rory when I was when he was thirteen as uh, a junior. I was helping the Irish team then, the Irish uh, golf team uh, in the Carlton House in Dublin. And we saw this young lad. There were two young lads actually. There was Rory. I think he was 13 or 14 and there was a 15, 16 year old, uh, a little fat lad with glasses. And uh, then I, I, I looked at them and, I, and uh, the guys from the Irish Golf Federation said, oh, what do you think? I said, well, you all know that Rory's going to be a great player. But I said, that little fat lad with glasses there is, uh, is going to be a great player as well. <laughs> and that was Shane Lowry. That was Shane wow. Lowry. <laughs> so we had them both then, but they were, they were both, and Rory was the, and he still is the type of guy that I asked him to play a particular bunker shot when he was fourteen, high on the top shelf, one bounce check and release, nice high floater. And I said, "You haven't got that shot, have you?" I have, I have. So he tried it. He hadn't got it that that session, and so he 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 went away and he was really unhappy with himself. So, but then he said at the end of the week when we'd seen him, he says, "Well, next time I see you, I will have got that shot." Believe me. So when I saw them about a month later at Carton House, the first thing he did, he ran up to me and said, I've got that shot now. I've got that shot. I want to show you. I want to show you. So he, he was, you know, keen to actually make every shot count, really. Wow. that That's a great story. He he, he was um, he was determined early on. And it's great. You've seen greatness at a really early age. Um, but looking at the stats, Pete, I see a trend here. So, you know, Tiger, he also had a 10-year difference between the 14th and 15th major. Um, do you see a possible similar path for Rory entering the drought next year? Well, he's one of, he's one of the best players in the world. So, you know, every time a major comes along, he spoke about, you know, the thing is with, um, with Brooks, Brooks has won five majors in the last six years since 17. So, and nobody else has got anywhere near that. So all of a sudden, Rory's got players that are major winners, you know, and uh, it would be nice to see them go head to head, Rory and uh, and Brooks at some stage in one of the majors. That would be nice. That would be very. That would be very nice. I, I would pay yeah, to see would. Rory. Versus, the the, versus the problem is now that you know, with with obviously Brooks being a lift player, luckily he's got five years exemption because of his win at the USPJ last year in all majors. So he's able mm. to play all the majors for the next five years. Not the case for all the lift players. Cam sure. Smith has uh, five years exemption, obviously, because he won St. Andrews. And there's a few other players that are exempt in the majors. Mickelson's exempt for three majors, but at 52, are you going to win more majors? Well, he won one at 50, so who knows? And yeah. if Mickelson can win one at 50, then Tiger Woods can win one at 50. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like... Now, I don't want to project, but it almost I almost feel like Rory has a little Pete in him. Like, how is he behind the scenes? We saw him getting hot recently at the Ryder Cup. 
you know, he's he's uh, he's had a firm stance in the past with his comments against Liv. Um, what does he sort of like behind the scenes? Is he is he a fire? He's a, is a fiery guy as you were. Uh, no, he didn't throw clubs and you know like I didn't break clubs. <laughs> Although you know he does curse curse quite a bit, obviously. Uh, but I think he's got a great caddy on the bag. He's his best pal, you know. So I think they make a good pair, you know. And he's a good player in any case. So I think that really really helps. Um, that you're saying his caddy, his friend, yeah, helps him sort of behind the scenes and like keeps him calm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what you want. You want, you know, your bag man, you need somebody on there that's, you know, that's calm, under pressure. And, you know, so um, I think I think they'd make a good a good team. So, yeah. You know, it's like, like Brooks and Ricky Elliott make a good team. Uh, Mitt Fitz, Matt Fitz and Billy Foster, they make a good team. So... Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what that's what that's what you need on the. You'll notice that all all great players have had you know really good bagmen. You know, I mean, obviously, Rory's man, Harry Harry Diamond, he's a good player, and uh, he he's a good player in his own right. And he, I I taught Harry when he was a young lad, probably he was sixteen or seventeen, and he he was he was yeah. almost almost good enough. Was was uh, Harry, and he still plays a good game. Yeah. And what what change have you seen um, in young Rory versus now over the years? Well, the, the problem is it's the it's the saying that if you if you give a twenty year old fifty million, are they going to change? Yeah, I, th- I think you answer your own question. You know, of course they change, but they they don't change with me. But I can see the change in what they do outside of me because I've been there forever, as you know. So they don't do it with me, but I can see the change in people. And sometimes you have to say, I admire your heroes from afar, because when you get close to them, they sorely disappoint you. I'm not mm. saying that of Rory. I'm just saying that no, in, in general, general, in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I admire it, your it, heroes from afar. And Pete, actually watching that full swing documentary um, was some of the first time, the first time some people really got to see like the lifestyle that these guys live. Um, especially the top guys. Um, yeah, well, you know, the thing is with them now, I mean, they've all got a big team behind them. I mean, they've got uh, caddy, coach, trainer, physio, manager, um, backside wiper, ego stroker. <laughs> all those yeah. they've, got, they've got everybody there. <laughs> I hear you. So, yeah. yeah. No, so, that's... Uh... You know, They've got big no, they, teams around them, so they need to keep winning. They need to keep yeah. winning lots of money to keep teams like that in place. For sure, and they For sure. and they don't fl- they don't fly cl- in, in economy in the back. They don't fly in economy, and most no. of them fly privately. I mean, obviously, Rory's got his own plane, so he probably likes his own company. One man yeah. on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a lifestyle. Once you get used to it, I mean, um, you know, it's it's hard to shake. Um, for for those watching uh, the fan cast and in our stream right now with Pete Cowan, make sure you check out our polls that we have um, here on the ES fan cast. Interact with us. Let us know what you think, um, and, and make sure you you engage with with the polls that we have coming your way. Uh, Pete, let's talk a little Ryder Cup, man. So so last month, you know, Team Europe commanding victory. 
um, at Mark Simone yeah. uh, Golf Club. Yeah. Uh, Team USA's defeat, pretty scrutinized, picked apart. What do you think went wrong with them in Roan? Well, apart from them playing poorly, getting the pairings wrong and putting poorly, they didn't do a lot wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. That's back to your factual. That's That's your factual statement right there. Well, you know, the thing is, everybody says, well, did they have, you know, good team environment? Well, Ricky said the team themselves, Ricky Elliott was Brooks's, he said the team themselves in the team room were brilliant with each other. So, you know, it wasn't particularly that anybody fell out with anybody. It wasn't that. So, you know, they just didn't play as well as the Europeans and they didn't put as well. And obviously the pairings weren't as good as they should have been. It's always it's always getting the pairings right in, in the Ryder Cup. Getting those pairings right on the first day. That's yeah. really key. Yeah. I mean, we ne- they nearly got wiped out on the first day, you know. So I know. You no, know, it was um it, it was it was command it was an easy win, I felt like for uh Yeah. For, it got a bit team- closer on the on the Sunday, you know, at one time it got a bit close. But I mean, with the singles, the the US are always a little bit stronger in the singles. Because yeah. they, they never never really play team events, you know, whereas uh, our lads, they play practice rounds together. They live in the same hotels and what have you, you know. So they they get to know each other pretty well. Our team and and they'll most of them, you know, are friends. So they they have that camaraderie. So that's why Europe's done so well. I mean, yeah. I've coached what what seven of the last eight Ryder Cup captains. So I know you know the players when they were players, I coached them. So seven of the last eight Ryder Cup captains I've coached. Yeah, and, and also, Pete, what was interesting about um, the golf court, Marco Simone Golf Club, um, there was a gentleman who said, um, I don't like the course. I think it's horrendous. Oh, that was you. <laughs> you weren't you weren't a big mm-hmm. fan of uh, the course. Do you still have that same opinion of the layout of the course? And like, what do you, you Well, know? I think I, th- I think you might listen to Victor Hovland, what Victor Hovland said. He didn't like the course, but he thought it was a good a good match play course. Well, a good golf course should be playable by everybody, you know, and, and that course particularly for, you know, average golfers was not a course for average golfers. But great courses, you know, that they are. You know, you get Birkdale, you know, a, a 15 handicap player can play around Birkdale and quite enjoy it, you know, but yeah. a 15 handicap player around there would, you know, uh, so it was obviously built just for a stadium course. Uh, sure. Which, Obviously, they had their Ryder Cup in mind, and they got it. And it was tough on the cat. You, you know, you said it would be tough on the caddies, right? You know, throughout the, uh, well, the they, couple of days, you could you could see that they eventually they had small bags. <laughs> if you <laughs> noticed, they had they had small bags. <laughs> the the caddies the caddies in the morning told the golfers like, "Do you really need this club? Do you yeah, really exactly? Need- it's going to be warm out there. Let's take the small bag. You only yeah. need the clubs. You don't need anything else." <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and and one of the storylines that we saw there, um, for lack of a better term, for lack of a better term, Hatgate. Uh, you know, we saw that Patrick Cantlay of the U.S. Um, there was rumors that he wanted to be paid for playing in the Ryder Cup. Um, he didn't wear the Team USA hat. He said it didn't fit. Um, do you think Hatgate was silly, or do you think there was something more behind Patrick not, you know, wearing the the gear? Well, the, the American players get uh, hundred thousand dollars for the charity of their choice, so might, they might be their own foundation. So they do actually get paid uh, indirectly. The Europeans don't. The Europeans just get expensive. 
and there was no, you know, I think I think the players these days that, that, that are in the Ryder Cup, that are in that sort of echelon, I think they get enough money to not worry about wearing a hat and getting paid for it, all that. I mean, I, I know the Ryder Cup makes an awful lot of money, TV revenue and everything, but, you know, I think the players are well... In sport, I think personally in sport, that uh, there's too much. They get, they get paid far too much relative to the normal person. Wow. All sports, soccer, you know. I mean, there's players, there's players in the Premiership over here at football, and you know the teams, and they they're getting a hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week, and they're not even in the squad. They're not even in the team. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean that's seven and a half million a year, and they're not even playing for the team. I mean, I, I think it's crazy the way it's gone. And that's TV. That's us that are paying subscription channel TV are paying all that. You know, that, that's as simple as that. Without the TV, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be getting paid that much. That's for sure. 150,000 150, pounds. That's a lot of driving range buckets purchased at the Peak Owen Golf Academy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would that would uh, that would be a nice taking for the year, the year, not 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 for a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah um let's talk a little brooks brooks kepka you've been working with brooks for a long time now um you're mainly focusing on his short game what aspect would you say that you work on with work with him to that he needs to improve the most uh, i think they all need to improve the short game if they're going to win the biggest tournaments but i have a bit of a joke that i say i do i do brooks's short game anything under 300 yards <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but but I, when we started, when we started uh, in 2013, this caddy, Ricky Elliott, who's still with, with Brooks, said to Brooks, your short game's not good enough to win, you know, on tour. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with my short game. There's nothing wrong with my short game. And he said, well, let's let Pete have a look at it for you. And uh -oh. I trust Pete. So we we got together at Wentworth in, uh, in London at uh, the PGA Championship. And Ricky said, will you have a look at Brooks' short game and see, you know, what, what you think? So I said, yeah, we'll come down to the the chipping area and the bunkers down there uh, on the on the west, on the east coast, east right. coast. And uh, we went in there and asked Brooks to play a particular shot. I said, right, to so that back flag, I want you to do a high bunker shot, one bounce check and release towards the hole. Okay. So I, he, he hit it and... He hit a duff, what I call a duff and run. It came out, it was duffed, and it ran up towards the flag. He got somewhere near, but it was not the shot. So I said, no, that's not the shot. I want it higher than that. One bounce check and release to the hole. So he tried it again, and it was another duff and run. He got somewhere near, but not that good. So I said, no, no, that's not the shot. And he said, well, if you're so bloody good, you show me. So I took the wedge off him, and I went one bounce check, high flight, one bounce check, in. And he said, that's a fluke. So I said, Do it again. another ball. I went, one bounce check, in. So he said, I think I'd better listen. I, don't know. I said, yeah, you better listen. So, Holy <laughs> shit. That is so an incredible since story. Then, since then, since then, he's listened to me on the short game. And he's become a really, really good chipper and a good monkey. The only thing that lets him down sometimes is that, you know, he, he, he probably doesn't hold enough putts. He does in majors. And that's the only thing that matters. He holds all the crucial putts in majors. But it, it almost as though, you know, majors, he's, his focus is so intense. And even Ricky, his caddy, will say he's more involved in the game 
in a major than he is in a normal tournament. I.e., you know, what do you think here, Ricky? Should we a little draw shot into the back flag? So there's more, you know, chat. There's more intensity about the shot when he's in majors than there is in a normal tournament. And even yeah. Ricky says that. He's caddy. Yeah, and speaking about, obviously speaking about majors, you spoke about the potential of Brooks, how he has the capabilities to potentially dream, achieve a double-digit major dream. Uh, my question to you is, apart from Kepka. Who else do you think has the firepower to, to achieve this tough accolade, both in live as well as the PGA? I think there's some good, really good youngsters, but trying to win a major is not easy. I mean, when you've got, you know, Rory, who's been one of the best players for the last, you know, 15 years, having a 10-year drought, it just shows you how difficult it is to win a major. You know, everything's got to come right on the day. And that's why... I don't think Brooks getting, gets enough credit for winning those five majors. But what he does, what he does, he kept, he calls me out on because I was coaching Gary Woodland um, when he won the US Open in 2019, and uh, Brooks was going for the third US Open. He'd won he'd won 17, 18. He was going for his third win in the US Open that tournament. And of course, what happened? Gary Woodland beat Brooks by a couple of shots. So Brooks right. always says to me, you cost me, if you hadn't have helped Gary, I'd have won three major, three US Opens in a row. That would have been unique. And I, so he blames me for helping Gary to win the US Open and he should have won three in a row. So, <laughs> you know, he, if you look at his record, he, he should have won probably eight already. Mm. Hey, I mean... So he, his, his, his mantra is, Five and counting. <laughs> Seems like a great way to help ensure winning more majors is to make sure Pete Cowan doesn't coach your opponents. Uh, well, that, that's funny that, that because, you know, I, there's no end of time. I mean, but I was actually coaching uh, Gary full-time, like Gary Woodward full-time. So, you know, I, I've got, in, in the past, I've given a few players you know, advice at the beginning of a tournament because I like them. I don't particularly coach them, but they've asked me at the beginning of the week, just have a look at my swing, will you, Pete? I'm struggling at the moment. And I wow. remember doing it with Adam. I remember doing it with Adam Scott in the Swedish Open in uh, in, in Malmo. And uh, Adam at the beginning of the week said, you know, I'm really struggling. Can you just have a look at me? I said, yeah, because I've, I've been friendly with Adam for years. So, of course, I helped Adam for a couple of hours on the Monday. And I kept asking him, how's it going? How's it going? And by Wednesday, he says, yeah, it's going pretty good. So that week, what happened? Adam Scott won. But you know the worst thing about that? The worst thing about that is the two players that finished joint second were both my players. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I knew it was that. <laughs> and I've done my... that three times now. I've not learned yet. I've done that three times now. My goodness. Well, I want to take a pause for a second. Appreciate you opening up about the I, I'm not sure people have heard some of these stories before. So we really appreciate it. And for those watching on the fan cast, make sure you check out the reels that, that we're making from this. Um, there are some going to be some good sound bites. Um, there's also sound bites from from previous episodes you should check out. So make sure you check out the ES fan cast and, and look at the reels that we have that are on YouTube, Instagram and our various social media pages. Um, mm -hmm. Pete, it feels like we're at an inflection point in golf in a couple ways. And and particularly 
two big pieces here. New golf leagues combined with the new technology that's seeping into the sports. You've witnessed the ups and downs of live golf in the past few years. Um, obviously, they created a platform that directly competed or competes with the PGA Tour. Now we have the introduction of the TGL. Do you think Liv has something to worry about? Um, well, no, because they've got they've got the best players playing in every tournament. It's not just they can't. You know, it's like the PGA Tour. They don't have the best players playing in every tournament. Although now they've got the designated events that they've got to play in, they can only miss one. Uh, so the lift players play, you know, every week and they're competing against good players every week. I mean, when you look at the players in the live, you know, you have to say, well, you know, to say that Dustin Johnson is 150th on the world rankings is a joke. To say that Bryson DeChambeau is 155th is a joke, really. So the world rankings aren't the world rankings anymore and the, the top players are. But, so, but Liv has got those players. I mean, when DeChambeau shoots, 58 on a course that the PGA Tour had been playing year on, year out, and nobody had ever got close to doing that. Well, yeah. you know, it just shows you the quality of the players that Liv have got. And it's a shame that they can't live together because they need to come together and they need to actually, the best players need, for the sake of golf, they need to come together and they need to get world ranking points back and just find out who the, the best players really, really are. Otherwise, the fan is getting shortchanged. Yeah. I mean, if somebody if somebody came to me and they said, I've got $2 billion to invest in your sport, I'd be talking to them if I was in charge of any any sport. Yeah. So it, need, it, needs, a, it needs a conversation. Absolutely. And Liv was very disruptive when it first, you know, emerged. And it changed the way people looked at the game of golf. Ten years ago, Pete, let's go back ten years ago. If someone were to tell you, about live golf and TGL, would you have believed them or do you think they were crazy? Well, uh, 20 years ago, I said that golf should change a little bit. I said that it shouldn't be more of a team sport, i.e. you have 10 players playing for New York City, 10 players playing for LA, 10 players playing for London, 10 players Whoa. playing for Madrid, 10 players. I told this to the, you know, the people at, at the head at the top. I said, then all of a sudden there's interest because every weekend it's, Manchester against LA, LA against New York, you know, Dallas against whatever, Phoenix or whatever. And you could have, you know, 20 teams of 10 players and interacting. And that would be 200 players. That would be 200 players. Hmm. Uh, be, then you would get 200 of the best players playing in your league. And that could be it. at the end of a season or it could be, you know, toward towards the start of the season. It didn't have to be, you know, them and us. It didn't have to be. But wouldn't, wouldn't you I, think I, that... I broke that you, subject 20, 20 years ago. Wouldn't you think that would damper sort of the individual brands that are being built through golf? Like if Tiger Woods it, played on the LA team, do you think it, he would, it, be, it would be... It would be... It would be an addition to... It would be an addition. You could have 20 tournaments where the top 100 of those players in the teams get together and play the majors or, you know, uh, or designated events. And then the rest of the season, they play the team events, you know, so you could have, you could have them playing mm -hmm. 20 tournaments and then you could have them playing 10 tournaments for the team or whatever. Interesting. Interesting. 20 years it would, ago. It wow. Would have, it would have worked. It would have worked because, 
golf is golf is the most boring sport to watch on TV. I'm a golf nut, and it's boring, boring. But the, the coming, thing coming about from that, you, that that's a big statement, and I I, I tend to agree. But you know, uh, and when I look at the live, they were they're saying that the average age of people watching live golf tournaments is early thirties. The average tape people watching U.S. Tour, the PGA Tour, is early sixties. So it's a different mm. clientele. It's a different market. So you've got people from different markets. And when you go to a live tournaments, there's not people saying, shh, shh, shh. No, no, that people are still on the phone because there's music playing all the time. So right. they don't have to shush, you know, don't know that. They're very respectful of the crowd, but, you know, they don't, they don't need to, you know, be told to put the phone down and be, be quiet all the time. Well, well, I think that that sort of, brings up a, a a bigger point that we're seeing in golf and baseball as well. It, these are two sports that there's just been a ton of unwritten rules and people asking, you know, not asking, but it's kind of like, okay, why is it done this way? And it feels like it's becoming more modernized to appeal to a bigger market on uh, and music's one thing. Um, and we just talked about like, so you said 20 years ago, you, you made this, this claim, you wanted to see some changes what is your do you have a prediction of what could happen to the sport 10 years from now well they're, they're all saying that it's going to be like esports esports i mean the swiss open the swiss open this year at Cronsocier, they had a guy there that won on a simulator he won on a simulator and he got a place in the tournament he didn't do very well but he won the shot I don't know what course they were playing, Pebble Beach or something, on the simulator, and he shot a low score on the simulator. Right. So he was then allowed. But I think they had four players that had done really well on the simulator, and they had to play a playoff at the same course, Cronsusier, on the Wednesday, I think. No, it wasn't. It was on the Tuesday or Monday or Tuesday. And they had to play a playoff where one player got a place in the tournament, one out of the four. But the criteria was that, that they... they They'd ha- they had to be able to shoot 77 or less. Yeah. Yeah. Nah, they didn't. After- they didn't the, the, the guy didn't do any good. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, Pete, I, when looking at like what we're going to chat about today, there's one thing that really stuck out to me. And I am fascinated to hear your opinion on this or a fact, depending on you know, what you decide to respond with. But we got to talk about the golf rollback potential. There's been this long-standing debate about golf ball rollback. Um, reportedly, it's introduced to reduce the golfer's distance. Um, you know, as we're seeing these days, the guys of Brooks, Bryson, you just slam in the ball, 300-plus uh, yards, you know, humongous drives. Um, but the golf rollback is is to ensure that, you know, for for the pros, um, you know, the, the drives are are lessening. Uh, it's gotten backlash from the fans. The PGA Tour, Tiger Woods has has spoken up about it. What is your opinion uh, on the golf ball rollback? I don't think it will happen. I think it's too expensive for the companies. I think it's far too expensive. Plus the fact that when you know when players, when, well, spectators go to watch a tournament, they're not going to watch somebody hold a three-foot putt. That's for sure, which is the same value as a 350-yard drive. 
what are they going to watch? What are the fans going to watch? They don't go and watch the putting. They go and watch somebody. Oh, did you see where he hit it on this hole and that hole and the other? So, you know, that one. But the, the golf ball is governed in any case. The golf ball is already governed. It's governed yeah. at a certain speed, you know, foot foot per second at X mile an hour. So it's already governed. It can't, and the, the clubs are already governed. They can't go. It's just that the athlete has got better. The athlete's got an awful lot better. The equipment's got an awful lot better. You know, that's unfortunately, that's what's called progress. As much as <laughs> yeah. you don't like it, fine. Yeah. If you if you if you want to roll it back, go back to persimmon woods and ballata balls. And I guarantee you they won't be hitting it 350 yards. I guarantee you. Don't matter how good athletes they are. So yeah. roll it back with it, roll it back with the club and the ballata ball. Go back. It, uh, it, this might not be the perfect analogy, Pete, but I, I almost liken this situation to let's raise the basketball hoop in the NBA to eleven or twelve feet because the players are starting to jump higher. Yeah, I mean, it just absolutely. doesn't make it just doesn't make that much sense to me. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, it's what's called progress. They're just better. They're just getting better, and you have to accept it. As you get older, they, people get better. <laughs> Yeah, the, young, I, the youngsters. You see the youngsters coming now. They're, they're all good. They're all good. I mean, I've got a grandson at a college in America. He's, he's in between uh, Tampa and Orlando, Florida, um, Florida Southern. And uh, he said, you know, the kids at the at the universities, they're all six foot five, six foot six, and they hit the ball miles. So I mean, you know, when you look at that, that's what's coming. You know, it's it's what's coming. It feels like if they knew the fans, I mean, to your point, the fans want to see the big drives. Uh, they want to be wowed by ball placement. Um, what is what do you think is the motive behind pushing this rollback? Um, well, I think obviously the, the the amount of land you need to build golf courses these days, you know that, uh, and the, the the water that's needed to water them, and you get courses that. You know, like Hilton Head, which is not a long course, but that's that already they rolled back there because they can't hit driver on every hole because of the you know the the designer. So you get your designer to design courses you know like that more often, which the pros have to play a little bit more conservatively and correctly and placement wise, rather than just standing up there and hitting it as hard as they can. I mean, they just had a tournament there where. You know, Tiger Woods built his new course uh, in, I think it was Mexico last week. And the fairways were that wide that everybody was just hitting the ball 320, 330 yards, you know, consistently. So, you know, and they they weren't missing any fairways because they were so wide. So make a course that, you know, you you can't use a driver on every hole. No. If you want want to, you know, that's a rollback. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And I appreciate you, appreciate your your stance there. Um, for those watching, make sure uh, that you check out some of our previous episodes as well. Um, if you like our conversation currently with Pete, you know, we've had some amazing conversations with the likes of Tristan Kennedy, Kai Wu, uh, Mia St. John, Adam Wilkes, um, and some other amazing folks. So make sure you check out previous episodes uh, here on the ES FanCast. They can be found on YouTube and on Essentially Sports. Uh, Pete, 
Let's talk compartmentalization. There's been a huge buzz about it lately in golf. Um, the different parts of a swing. I, I'm I'm a casual golfer. I, I need to get my uh, my short game better, but also always can always work on uh, my driving. Can you explain to us what compartmentalization is um, in the sport and, and sort of how you think about it? Well, I mean, there's there's only really in, in golf. There's a, a great driver of the ball, great iron player, great you know wedge player, great bunker player, great you know putter. So you, if those are the compartments, but if you want the mental compartment, I would say there's one book to read: Mental Carp, Compartmentalization. Carp, Compartment compartmentalization it's the chimp paradox which is steve peters and that tells you that you've got to get the brain in the right gear and get that you know there are um, they're always going to be guys that drive the ball great they're always going to be great iron players they're always going to be you know you can you can mention one rory's a great driver of the ball um zander shuffle is a great putter you know you, you can go on mentioning each player but you want a one player that's got all those things together. And then, you know, you've got possibly the best player in the world. And that's what Tiger Woods was at his peak. He was the best at all those. Yeah. Who do you think is the best right now um, in co- with with this sort of idea of compartmentalization? Um, you know, is it Rory? Is it Brooks? Is it like they have different combinations? Do you see someone else who, who implements this better? Well, you know, they've, they've all got the strengths and they've all got uh, the weaknesses. But um, as I said, during majors, Brooks doesn't seem to have any weaknesses. They just all, they all disappear. Yeah. Uh, and obviously players players talk about, that's why he's won five in seven in six years. And then they talk about Rory, you know, not having a great wedge game and not putting as well as he should. And, you know, that's, you know, that, that's unfortunately a fact of, the stats that people, you know, and people read the stats and look at the stats. There's so many stats these days that, you know, you, you can look at each component part of the swing and say, well, he's brilliant at that. He's a, so you look at it and you, you've got to really remember that you've got to work on your weaknesses, but don't forget your strengths. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Pete, you're talking to us right now from your golf academy, the Pete Gowen Golf Academy how do you think your academy? I'll uh, talk a little about you know what you guys are up to and and how have you helped sort of junior golfers around the world, especially in the UK. Well, we have uh, at the academy, our academy, we run ten tournaments for kids a year for the for the kids that are young, really youngsters. They play nine holes on a shortened courses, and we have ten of those a year. That's sponsored by me and Callaway. Uh, and then we have four majors for the better players on it, really good golf courses. Uh, so at the moment we've got 14 tournaments running for kids that I, I and Callaway sponsor here and we have uh, Saturday morning for the kids, Monday night for the kids and Tuesday night for the kids. So we've, we've, we do an awful lot for the kids in the local area. Luckily we get an awful lot of you know good kids coming through those, those academy uh, nights. And yeah. The, the secret is out. They know uh, they really want to improve their game. Yeah. And-, and We, we don't. Everybody says, you know, that, that everybody, you know, is growing the game. When I look around it, I don't, I see them growing the game at the top end. I don't see the growth at the game at the bottom end. So what I mean by that is that the, the people like the RNA and the USGA, and they help people that are already in golf. Uh, we want to find those that we're going to miss. 
that aren't wow. in golf. And that's why we have, you know, these young, really young kids playing golf and enjoying it. And we're bringing them on. And then the RNA and, and the USGA might say, well, we've helped them from, yeah, but you didn't help them at the beginning. There's no help. There's no help at the bottom. We, uh, me and Callaway sponsor all our tournaments. There's a cost involved. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, no, I, nobody, nobody else, nobody else helps us. Yeah. No, I would, and, and it's much, I'm sure it's much appreciated within the community and, and for junior golfers who, who know about the, the Academy and speaking of junior golfers, I'm curious to pick your brain here. Uh, Charlie Woods, like Tiger Woods son has picked up, you know, wins in junior golf events. Um, obviously being the son of Tiger, you face this unnatural amount of pressure. Um, you know, for a junior golfer like Charlie, do you think the expectations on him are unhealthy? Is that what's actually going to make him great later on in life? Do you, did you feel the same that like Rory and Shane Lowry experienced that same pressure? Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this pressure as a, as at that age? Well, I mean, again, that's people's opinions. You know, a lot of people have, would have opinions on how you actually bring your own child up and, you know, like pushy parents or people that just say, well, make your own way, son uh, or daughter, uh, and don't really give them much help and they just make their own way. But but again, is it is it an opinion? The young lad's got a lot of pressure on him because of his father. But there again, there's been, you know, Jack Nicholas has, you know, kids and they had an awful lot of pressure on them because they two of them were professional golfers and they didn't quite make it. Gary Blair's son was a professional player. So, you know, the, the answer to that is that, you know, just because you've got a great father that's a great player, it doesn't guarantee, you know, that you, your son's, but he looks, he looks yeah. a real good player. And yeah. at 14, yeah, that's all you can say. You, you know, you can't say any more than that. Who knows? We've not got crystal ball. But what they what, what they will say is that if he keeps progressing and wins all those junior tournaments that his dad won and everything, you'd have to say that, you know, what a great chance he's got at the professional level. But we'll see. You know, I mean, yeah. that's all you've got to say. And I think, you know, his dad, the only opinion that matters really is his father's opinion. And it would be a pretty good opinion coming from Tiger Woods. Absolutely. And to add to that point, watching the Tiger documentary, Tiger had an immense amount of pressure on him when he was young as well. And, you know, regardless of, you know, the level that his dad played at golf wise. Um, but now it's sort of different, right? Because Tiger has experienced the, the pinnacle of golf. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting there. Um, and, you know, speaking of Tiger, um, you know, he's been on and off since 2021 uh, due to fitness and health reasons. You know, seeing him all these years, you've been around the game. Um, do you think Tiger has some more magic in him? Well, as I said to you earlier, if I see Phil Mickelson winning a major at 50, then, you know, you'd have to say that if Tiger can, you know, get anywhere near his, it's never going to be as fit because the unfortunate thing is age makes everybody look ordinary and you can't do a thing about that. And, you know, you look at him, he's far from ordinary, but age does take its toll on everybody. And with all his injuries and everything, you'd have to say it would be an unbelievable feat if he actually did it again. I, I sure as hell wouldn't be surprised. Um, in, but in, then uh, it's Tiger Woods, so what do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> he, surprised, no. he surprises everybody. He surprises everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's good. He's, he's good. He was great for the game. I mean, everybody, 
at professional level now should actually be thanking Tiger Woods because he made golf popular again. A bit like Arnold Palmer made golf popular in the 60s and 70s. Tiger Woods definitely made golf popular. You know, in the could, in the early two thousand, early two thousand, I could not agree more. Tiger has been incredible for the sport, and even if he, whether he's at his peak or not, when he's playing, you know, we're we're tuned in. Um, and if People you're tuned in, watching, yeah, I know. And if you're tuned in watching the the fan cast, and and we've had some incredible sound bites so far, make sure you check out our infographics to hear some of the sound bites and and thoughts from from Pete. Um, and so let's you know switching back to to live, Pete. And let's talk once again about some driving here. We have between Brooks, uh, Bryson, Dustin Johnson. This is a tough one for you, but I'm going to put it on you right here. Who has the best ball striking capabilities? Uh, well, if if you watch them all, they're, they're all obviously brilliant drivers of the golf ball at their best. There's no doubt about it. And you would always say to a player that's a brilliant driver of the ball, it's one of your you know, important weapons, get it out there as often as possible. And when they're all driving, I mean, Bryson obviously went to the absolute limit with the distances he hit it and he's had to pull it back. Uh, he, I mean, he could get over 200 ball speed easy, uh, but he's actually knows this, had to drag it back to about 185, 190 to keep it under control. So they're not, they're not hitting flat out all the time. And I know that Brooks very often will play a tournament where it's just a fairway finder, a fairway finder, a fairway finder, if the course demands. And then all of a sudden, you know, he'll get one out and he'll say, this this drive, I need to really, you know, push it. And they'll do it. So each one, I mean, but when I watched Dustin drive, when he's at his best with a driver, he was he was incredible, you know, driving the ball. Uh, but then they're all incredible when you get to that level. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, very diplomatic answer there. We uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, Brooks is, Brooks is still the best player. He's yeah. won the most majors. He's won the most wages, majors. Yeah, objectively speaking, absolutely. Yeah. Um, factual. Yeah, factual. <laughs> Pete, I need to hear from you your Mount Rushmore of golf. Who are you putting on your Mount Mount Rushmore of golf and why? Um, I think it's got to be Henrik Stenson, really. Because when I started with Henrik in 2001, Henrik, he couldn't keep the ball on the golf course. He was horrendous. He was a basket case. He really was a basket case. He, he was, his technique was terrible. And he'd, he'd lost all confidence in himself. I mean, you know, he could hit one 100 yards right, 100 yards left, when nobody knew where he was going to go. Yeah, that sounds like nice really, that That was a re, total rebuild uh, that took us probably two and a half years. And then, obviously, from then, he went on and uh, he's, he's, he's won everything now. So, you know, he won the Players', he won the players Championship, Sorgra. He won the uh, FedEx. He won the uh, Race to Dubai in the same year as the FedEx. Uh, he won the Open 16. He's done everything there is in golf. He's played great in the Ryder Cup. So, you know, from okay. the beginnings, the beginnings that we had, and the raw material that we had, we didn't have much raw material there other than the person. And he's a great, he's a great person, Henry. Okay. Henrik Stenson, who else you got? Uh, um, I think, obviously, the first one that, um, um, the, the guy that won the first major that started it all was Graham McDowell. 
he won uh, in in uh, Pebble in 2010. That was the first major we had with any player. And uh, he that week, you know, I, I said, again, the similar sort of scenario to Brooks. I said, you know, it's a pity uh, on this first round. I said, it's, uh, it's a pity you didn't get as much out of the round as you probably, uh, you know, could have done or, or should have done. And he turned around to me and he said, I've got a big one in me, you know. <laughs> and at the end of that week, he certainly had he got the US Open at the end of that week. <laughs> so again, it's 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 not it's not you know the giving the golf lesson. It's talking to the player and almost making him realize how good he is. Yeah. Okay. And then I think you got you have two more to fill out your your Mount Rushmore. You have two more slots. Um. Well, I think Brooks with you know with uh, obviously with the short game area and to Wentworth when he looked in, in disbelief as I hold two bunker shots and said, I think I'd better you know, I better listen to you on the short game. I said, yeah, you'd, you'd, be, you'd definitely better. Uh, um, uh, the next one, phew, good question. Um, there's there's, Darren, there's, one, Darren there's one I'm yeah, shocked yeah. you haven't said yet, but I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, I think Darren, Darren Clark, because the, the, what happened with Darren on the week that he won the the open at uh, uh, at St George's that was unbelievable because he arrived the week and his manager had booked him to actually speak well to do broadcast on TV the weekend because his manager thought he'd got no chance of winning the open that week so he he thought he was even going to miss the cut so he'd got him a broadcast slot for the weekend that week. Uh, and uh, I had to, you know, almost again give Darren a bollocking on the Tuesday morning of the uh, of the Open, and it was a real bollocking. You know? And uh, then I never forget because that time uh, Rory had won uh, his major, Charles Schwartzler had won his major, and um, Rory, Charles, and Louis had won the majors just the year before or just that year. And, of course, they were playing a practice round with Darren at St. George's. And the three of them walked in front when I was walking on the on the fairway. The three of them walked in front and turned around to Darren and said to Darren, where's your major, Darren? And you've never seen a guy's face go so <laughs> And, I mean, I think that probably just gave him the impetus to say, right, that's it. I'm not letting those three show me up. And wow. he won at the end of the week. But he was so calm all week. So it was unbelievable. So there's unbelievable stories like that that aren't all about technique. They're all about making the guy believe in themselves. So in the Pete Cowan Mount Rushmore, just 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 so I have clear, no Tiger Woods in 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 your or or Honor Palmer in the Mount Rushmore of Pete Cowan. Wow. No. Incredible. Incredible. Well, this is uh, this has been an incredible conversation um, with Pete Cowan. Uh, here on the Essentially Sports Fan Cast. Pete, we want to make sure I give you some time to do some research today uh, on the greens at the Academy. But uh, please tune in. If you like that, check out our polls, reels, infographics. I've been your host, Noah Lack, and um, we'll, we'll see you next time. All right, Noah.